are listening to The Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Welcome to The Cooler Ring. We're coming to you live from the Manufactured Summit in Chicago, Illinois, and we're really pleased today to have Stephen Gold, the CEO of Maypie, with us, joining us again, actually, on the podcast. Yeah, and I think it's a nice opportunity to just kind of touch base almost mid-conference here. And, yeah. Um, uh, check in on how the conference is going. It's certainly been an exciting uh, uh, time for us here. Uh, yesterday was just a chock full of, of fantastic speakers and a lot of really great, I, I thought, um, crowd interaction. Like the, the folks are really helping each other out. And the, that networking, I think, Stephen, was was just so so terrific to see and at a very, very senior level as well. Um, uh, but uh, that's from the outside looking in, admittedly, here at Kula. I'd kind of be curious uh, uh, about your take on how the day uh, went yesterday and how the conference is going so far. Well, I, the conference is going very well. It's exactly as expected. Great turnout, uh, as you said, high-level um, executives. Uh, that was, you know, what makes our MAPI events, I think, kind of a little unique is that these, these guys all work and these men and women all work in companies that are very similar to each other. Um, I, the highlight for me was probably the chocolate peanut butter cups at the uh, during the demo and dessert. Uh, but aside from, yeah, no, no, I, I I I felt like I was a salesperson for those things for a while because <laughs> I told four or five people that they needed to go to, and I think Deloitte thought I was just trying to send them to their booth or something. But I wasn't even being that nice to Deloitte. Uh, yeah, but I'll tell you, it's uh, the this um, it's a, it's a little different what we're doing this year. Uh, that demo and desserts was different. Everybody got a chance to look at the new technologies. You know, Microsoft has its technology with AI, and Deloitte had its virtual reality, and Siemens was showing its automation uh, technology. And, and I thought that was very useful, uh, a very valuable use of time for folks. But at the same time, I, we're also mixing it up. We have these, uh, you know, we have our keynote speakers, of course, talking about digital transformation and AI and such, and we'll have more of that today. But uh, we also had the Ed Talks, which, you know, education talks, uh, model after TED Talks. Uh, and, and I thought that those were, that's, that's different. Obviously, there's no Q&A there, but it really gives you a chance to mix in a lot more ideas, uh, a lot more concepts. Uh, and uh, the, so far, I think all the speakers have been, you know, they, they understand the audience. They, uh, you know, we've, we've had folks talking about, uh, you know, drugs in the world. How do you know, how, what do you do about drugs in the workplace with all the states that are um, mm. legalizing marijuana? We have folks talking about corporate culture. Now, I feel like we need to stop right at the legalizing marijuana piece for a minute because it's about the best time to bring up the fact that it's early morning here in Chicago, <laughs> but we have a full deep dish pizza in front of us, thanks to Stephen, uh, wanting to introduce us. Uh, <laughs> Which goes back to our conversation on the previous podcast where we were asking where the best deep dish pizza in Chicago and deep dish Chicago versus New York style. And yeah, exactly. So it was a source of some debate and discussion. And uh, so uh, I guess uh, we're going to buckle up after this recording and see if we can get through some pizza. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe the lawyer that, um, uh, that, uh, gave that talk on marijuana in the workplace has some uh, supplies from the conversation that might help with the pizza. I don't know. I think one of the things that I, I've really kind of taken away from it, and not just the, um, 
the hardcore manufacturing talks and, and you know, the discussions about integrating AI and the digital transformation of your plant. But I thought there were some really interesting discussions of the softer side of things with Cal Newport, uh, who we, we've recorded on the podcast as well, really looking forward to, uh, to releasing his interview. And I, I thought that between that and uh, the fellow from uh, Entro? Impro Industries, yeah. Marvin Riley, Marvin, exactly. And he was, he was wonderful, and he, he was talking about, you know, a $1.5 billion company with 6,000 people all across the world and, and the creation of culture and kind of creating that community within your organization. I, I think that, uh, that that really was bringing a, a different perspective than you might expect at an industrial manufacturing conference. I think that's a good point. I mean, you mentioned Cal, you mentioned Marvin. Uh, I think those are, uh, you know, with everything that we're facing today in, in terms of not just the digital revolution, but in terms of the, the volatility of the global marketplace and the volatility of politics and look what's happening in China, you know, you're looking at recession now in in Europe, uh, and you know people are talking potential recession here. With your, um, it's important with all of that to understand we're dealing with people, uh, and that's the and in fact we'll, we'll, we have a, a couple of speakers today are talking about talent. This is if you ask a, a manufacturing leader what is the single most important thing right now in your mind, top of your mind, top priority uh, to try to figure out. It's how do you recruit and train and develop talent. Uh, and so, uh, and that's a soft skill. You know, it's, it's, it's caring about people. So I thought it was really important for us to bring those in, mix it in with, you know, the more engineering, more technical aspects of what's going on with the digital revolution. Stephen, I mean, you've been, uh, the, the conference has been going on for a number of years now. Um, uh, this is how, how what, number this, seven, this, this is, is number seven. seven. Yep. So, and I'm sure you see changes year to year uh, beyond just the, this year coming to this gorgeous venue here at Morgan Manufacturing. Um, uh, I know that that was a significant change, but how have the participants uh, um, changed? How's the mood in the room changed? How's the com how has the conversation evolved around digital transformation as these uh, years go by? Yeah, well, it's, uh, of course, the initial, the early um, uh, conferences were not focused solely on or it wasn't about accelerating transformation we had different themes back then this is a theme that's been consistent probably for four years now for obvious reasons it's on everybody's mind uh, but the uh, obviously the you know technology is moving so fast and also things are happening really fast in terms of the global marketplace so I think the uh, I think the conversation I think what we're able to do is dive in a lot quicker into the in these conferences to more to more relevant um, uh, issues uh, you know, we kind of get to the we got our speakers getting right to the heart of or, or the meat of the matter uh, much more quickly I think the what's interesting about this group I I've never seen so many new faces at one of these mm -hmm. conferences we always have repeat um, attendees but boy we probably have two-thirds of the folks are new to this executive summit and hopefully they'll come back next year next year we're going to be doing it a, a similarly at a manufacture a former manufacturing facility so uh, I but I think uh, I do think that the uh, it's easier for us to jump into the to, again to the most important those most important topics and really get the sleeves rolled up early. Yeah, There's not a lot it. of contact setting required, and yeah. the people are up to speed in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Fantastic, well, Stephen. Thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, I think this has been a great little kind of, uh, update of the conference so far. Looking forward to day two. Good. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks a lot.
Are your digital marketing efforts bringing in too many junk leads? Stop wasting time and distracting your sales team. Account-based marketing can help give your marketing strategy the laser focus on qualified buyers that you need to increase your pipeline velocity, close more deals, and grow your business faster. We've created a sample manufacturing ABM plan to help you get started. Download the sample manufacturing ABM plan at bit.ly slash sample ABM. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash sample ABM. Welcome to The Cooler Ring. My name is Jeff White, and joining me today is Carmen Perry. Carmen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, and we have Cal uh, Newport with us here. Uh, Cal, why don't we just get started right away with uh, getting you just to briefly introduce yourself for those who don't uh, know you and haven't read your books, and, uh, and then we'll dive into some questions about your session here at Maypi. Well, of course. Well, I'm a computer science professor at Georgetown University. I also write about the intersection of technology and culture. And I'm particularly interested in our struggle with new technological tools, to struggle to try to get tools to serve the things we care about, to try to avoid having these tools accidentally subvert the things we care about. And so I've written about this on both the professional angle and from the personal angle. So 2016, I had this book, Deep Work, that's really about some consequences of tech in the workplace. Earlier this year, I had a book called Digital Minimalism, which is really about some unintentional consequences of tech in our personal life, in particular our phones and how much we look at them. And so I cover these issues from a technologist's point of view, but also from a philosophical point of view, and I look at both the world of work and uh, the world of our life outside of work. I think what we're hoping to maybe cover in this chat is just at the intersection of those things in some ways. I think we're going to touch on both of them. Um, because for, the, for the, the, the audience for our podcast, largely manufacturing marketers, um, one of the certainly uh, significant trends over the last number of years, I believe since 2012, has been um, uh, more and more and more people working uh, client side versus agency side. I think 2012 was about peak employment from an agency side perspective. And now so many marketers are coming client side. And I think, you know, Prior to that, a lot of marketers used to be uh, not flying completely solo, but smaller teams uh, outsourcing a lot of their um, a, a lot of their work, and in doing so, didn't maybe have to be as focused on how the work got done. And I was really struck in listening to your uh, presentation earlier today around deep work, is how it seemed so contradictory to the world that they're working within, a world where people are hired because. They have uh, a savviness with digital tools, with social media tools, and expected to work in them all day, every day. And then contrasting that in some way with how do we get to a level of deep work in that context, in that environment. Um, so I, I'm not even sure where to start. Let's start at, at, at um, uh, how do you hire for or think about hiring for digital competence without uh, making sure that everybody's on all social media profiles all the time? Well, marketing is interesting because you get this odd intersection between what's often quite separate for people. So there's this world on their phone that is often quite separate from their world at work. There's this world of social media and the distraction and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And then there's world of work. And these are quite different worlds. Marketing, they come together. And that causes issues. So actually, in my most recent book, to try to get at this issue, what I did is I said, I'm going to go find some high-level social media brand managers. 
So people who do this at an incredibly high level uh, for really large brands, the real pros. And the reason I went and profiled how they work is that it has nothing to do with what you see people doing casually on their phone. That if you spend time with a really high level, let's say social media brand manager, first of all, their phone has nothing to do with it. They're, they're accessing these services through computers. They're not accessing them typically through the standard consumer facing interfaces. They'll be using a much more sophisticated interface, maybe through some software as a service interface or something like TweetDeck. And they have a lot of structure to how they actually do things. Let's say like monitoring social media reaction to a particular brand or looking at particular campaigns. They have schedules, they have structures, they have sophisticated filtered searches that they run on a, on a regular basis. It has almost nothing to do with I'm on my phone all the time. And I tell that story mainly to emphasize that there's a difference between how professionals use social media and how the rest of people use it. And if you confuse those two things, you say, well, if I'm, if I'm familiar with social media platforms and I should be fine running a sophisticated brand monitoring campaign on Twitter or running a very complicated Google AdSense, it's gonna run you in the problems. You're gonna end up with a lot of 23 year olds who are siphoning through a lot of money and are very, very frenetic and are not actually making an impact. Hmm. It, uh, I had like four follow-up questions to that. And then <laughs> like, the trouble is, is that uh, when you have four, you basically effectively have none. Well, this is the problem. Now you're context switching on your questions. <laughs> exactly. You need to be deeper. Exactly right. <laughs> Do you need questions? some time? Um, well, you know, maybe. Um, but I guess... As, a, as you think that through, I'm wondering, do those people uh, that are managing, that, that you interviewed and, uh, and perhaps shadowed a bit, um, what were they doing in their personal lives? Were, there, were they living more uh, typically distracted lives personally with their phone? Or did they take that same level of scheduling discipline to what they did, what they're doing professionally, to what they actually do personally? Well, you see both. But I think the fact that there's at least some people who are in that situation who really don't use a lot of social media in their personal life indicates the separation between those two things. Mm -hmm. I, one example I really like is one of the engineers who was involved actually with the introduction of the like button to Facebook. So the like button, uh, there's an interesting history behind it. I mean, it, it was a slight diversion here. It was, it was introduced for a, a very sort of nerdish technical reason. They were trying to make comments more efficient. They, the engineers hated to see one word comments, okay, great, cool, this seemed more efficient, but it ended up actually transforming the fortunes of Facebook and then the other companies that, that borrowed this design because it transformed the whole social media experience. So now it was no longer about, let me check what my friends posted and post some things myself. It was instead, let me look at these incoming social approval indicators. How many likes have I gotten recently? How many retweets have I gotten recently? How many photos have I been auto-tagged in? That change in the social media experience is what transformed our relationship to our phone from a tool into a constant companion. So really the source of a lot of the addictiveness of social media came from transforming the experience. So anyways, one of the original engineers on the like button, she went on to do her own startup after that and though they needed to do social media advertising and social media branding for the startup, she was so, let's say, burnt out or unhappy about what she had helped rot with that technology is that she refuses to see any of it herself. And so she's hired people to manage her online and her company's online uh, presence and sort of ritualistically or mechanistically do the work that had to be done because she didn't want to have anything to do with personal involvement with those platforms. 
It's interesting because, uh, you know, you see that in, you know, we're going to date ourselves now, but, you know, I remember a time when your time spent on social was spent more... Interacting. Yeah, well, writing blog posts or uh, tweeting original content, doing something more of interest or value. Yeah. And then now you're, you're quite right. Like, how often are you just logging on the platform to see some level of positive social indication coming back? And, and the, the point to emphasize is that that was purposeful. And so I get into this in the more recent book, but you can actually trace the timeline. Guess what the key pivot is on the timeline, the Facebook timeline, that you get this great re-engineering happening around? It's their IPO. They had to shift from this sort of high burn rate, venture-backed customer acquisition mode into revenue generation mode so they could have the right numbers on the books when they went to Wall Street. So how do you get your revenue up if you're Facebook? One of the things you do is you have to get people to spend more time looking at their accounts. And what they had before was let's take web 2.0, this world of blogs and homemade websites and make the interfaces much easier. This is what Facebook and the original companies offered. It was we put a nicer interface around this nice web 2.0 experience. They had to transform it all into no, 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 it's all about this incoming intermittent stream of information about you and how people are thinking about you and it hacks your brain in such a way that you can't help but check it again and again and it made them uh, incredibly wealthy, but it also completely transformed people's experience with this tech. So it's incredibly artificial what we see today, which is people looking at their phone all the time. That is not an intrinsic property of these technologies. It's not an unavoidable outcome of having a world of internet connectivity. It's essentially a business feature. Do you think that the, I mean, that engineered dopamine hit <laughs> that, that we're seeing there, that that can be trained out of people? You, you talked today in, in, your, uh, in your talk here at the Manufactured Summit about, you know, um, how we can train organizations. You, you spoke of extreme programming or pair programming and how instead of getting 50% with two people working on a single task, you actually get a significant multiplier, more productivity and quality of, of work. Um, do you think it's possible for people to be kind of trained away from relying on that constant approval rating and focus more on their work? Yeah. So I, I ran this experiment where I, I put out a call to my readers and I said, I want you to do something kind of radical. I want you to step away, at least in your personal life, from all of this optional text, so social media and streaming video and video games and all the things you do to distract yourself on your phone and on your computer outside of work, the stuff you don't have to do for your work. I want you to step away from it for a whole month. And when the month is over, we're going to then rebuild the tools you use, but be much more selective. So it was sort of, you know, Mary Kondo, but your phone. It was a big ask because it was 30 days without using any of this. So I thought, well, I'm going to get five or six people. I mean, I thought I would profile them. The idea was I would follow them and I would talk about them and they'd be in the book. And over 1,600 people signed up to do this. And basically the feedback I got is it takes about 10 to 14 days to lose the itch to check the phone. And then you pretty much lost it. Now the problem is if you don't wanna go back to it is you have to then put in place the replacement. And that turned out to be the key. What do I wanna do with my time instead? Because we underestimate the degree to which all of this stuff now that we do on our phone has pushed out of our lives the types of activities that used to give us satisfaction and meaning. We've lost our familiarity with them. They're a little bit harder than just looking at a screen but long-term they're more satisfying. And so that's why I asked people to take 30 days it was enough time away from all of the noise to actually figure out again, oh wait, what do I want to do instead? And the people who did not do that work of what do I really want to do with my time, they went right back to it. I, uh, I want to kind of talk and touch on a bit the kind of notion of organizing for deep work. 
I'm trying to put myself in, it's not much of a stretch, frankly, in running a, a small marketing agency, you know, in, in the place where you, you have a group of marketers that are working with you. And so if you're a VP of marketing at Siemens or what have you, you may find yourself in this position. And I, I wonder, how do you begin to foster those kinds of deep work patterns? It, it occurs to me that the workplace might need to shift physically in some way. Um, I guess talk to me about that. Well, it, it, it could be hard. I mean, I think that we need to see ultimately wholesale shifts in the workflows that are deployed in professional settings. But a short-term hack that seems to work in the lieu of that is this idea I talked about briefly in the talk I also talked about in Deep Work, which is this notion of, well, let's get a number and have something to actually manage to and allow the drive to hit this metric bring in innovations in how you run the office. And so the number in particular that seems to work is this deep to shallow work ratio. So you sit down with your direct reports, you sit down with your boss, you say, this is what deep work is, this is what shallow work is, both are important. If I don't do any deep work, I'm not that valuable. Uh, if I never answer email, I'm not that valuable. What's the right ratio that's going to maximize the value that I bring to this organization? And then you have a number. You need 50% of my time, 20% of my time, 75, it depends on the job. Now you can actually measure it. Right, what percentage of my time this week was actually spent on deep work? And if it's falling short from what you agreed on was going to maximize value for the organization, that's what starts to spark creative change. And so the reports I've been getting back from readers is stories such as, I was sure that our culture of, let's say, constant slack or something like this was so entrenched it would never change. They run this experiment, and in two weeks, massive changes to the way that their particular organization runs. So it can mean different things. It depends on the organization, what type of work you could do. So it could be a physical reconfiguration. It could be um, the CEO, if it's a small company, saying these are periods in which this particular person is completely inaccessible. This has my blessing. Uh, they're not allowed to look at Slack. They're not allowed to look at email during this period in the afternoon, this period of the morning. I've seen that happen before. Or nothing before 10 a.m. I want everyone just doing unbroken work till 10 a.m., never try to schedule a conversation or client meeting before that. There's a lot of different creativity that's possible there. But having a number to charge for, to try to get to, unlocks quite a bit of this flexibility. And have any best practices emerged there? Uh, I know, I know in, in your chat you talked uh, about programmers specifically, which occurs to me that that probably, I mean, I don't know what the percentage ought to be for deep work there, but it's, it seems like it might be on the higher end, I guess. Um, have, you know, what, what are the, have you seen any kind of guardrails that you might suggest or kind of guideposts to think about as you yeah. begin to formulate these targets? So some interesting ideas that have come out. Uh, so one, scheduling deep work, having it on calendar systems and protecting it like any other meeting or appointment is useful because not only does that give you a lot of control about how much deep work you do, but it gives you a record. And now you can actually manage to this and see how much deep work is happening. There's software products coming down the pike that actually make it easier for organizations to actually get these numbers. How much deep work are we doing? Uh, can we do better? Are we hitting our target? Are we not? There's also ideas coming from Scrum. So we have this sort of agile methodology that came from manufacturing into software development, which is now percolating out into uh, other, types of, uh, other types of work. But at the core of Scrum methodologies is this notion of brief pre-scheduled synchronous coordination. So you replace back and forth ad hoc 
emails. I send you, you get back to me, or Slack back and forth, just this constant ongoing uh, unstructured conversation. You replace it with these, what they call them scrums. The relevant people get in the same room. They don't sit down because you don't want any bloviation, right? Everyone stands up. You go around really quickly. What are you working on? What do you need from who? Did you do the thing you were talking about last time? This turns out to be incredibly effective in a lot of contexts, that pre-scheduled, efficient, synchronous coordination can replace hours of slow back and forth communication that keeps disrupting. So I've seen that idea be pretty big as well. I think that's really interesting because we switched to Agile Scrum four or five years ago and over that time saw a monumental improvement in our ability to deliver better work. Yeah. But I still think that there's a ways to go, you know, certainly for many organizations and us as well, you yeah. know, in terms of being able to truly focus on, on getting great work done without yeah. distraction. For any of the team listening to this, now they're going to think we're going to be more militant about it. <laughs> yeah, militancy helps. But also what's relevant, especially let's say for a, a marketing firm is client communication is another place. And so I profiled some firms that basically what they do is they sign a client communication agreement with their clients that spells out, this is how we're going to interact with you. They're often very afraid of this because the assumption is accessibility is key. If you remove accessibility, the client is going to be upset. Often, however, it's having clarity that people really want. Clarity trumps accessibility. And so this, this one company I've been profiling recently, it's not marketing, but they do sort of UI design. So it's in, it's in roughly the same, same size. So maybe a 12, 15 person company works with corporate clients. Uh, they sign these, these client communication agreements with their clients. It says, basically, here's how it works. There's this weekly call where we check in. We answer all your questions. We let you know how things are going. We then write a written record of everything we discussed and everything we promised during that call, and that written record is sent to you so you have it. And that's how we're gonna do it, as opposed to what was happening before, which is they're letting clients actually into their Slack channels. And it is infinitely better, and the clients don't care. They're happy to have the clarity. Great, now I don't have to worry about this. We have the Thursday call, we get it in writing, everything we talked about, now I can clear that out of my mental bandwidth. They were terrified that they were gonna lose half their clients. No one complained. Yeah, people think that um, just being 100% accessible equals good service. It's frankly, putting in that kind of a framework makes makes total sense. It's probably exactly the opposite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we'll steal that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cal, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today. I know this is a bit of a brief, uh, uh, brief introduction to your ideas and, and, and work in the space of deep work and uh, digital minimalism, but I thank you for contributing your insights. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Most manufacturers are converting barely any of their existing website visitors into leads. If you want to get better than your competition at finding good prospects online, start by watching our webinar, How to Manufacture Better Content. This webinar from Cooler Ring host Jeff White will teach you how to produce manufacturing-focused content that works. Watch it now at bit.ly slash hmbcwebinar. That's bit.ly slash hmbcwebinar. Welcome to the Cooler Ring. We're coming live from the Manufactured Summit in Chicago, Illinois. And joining us today on uh, this episode is Joanna Sohovich, the CEO of the Chamberlain Group. And uh, welcome to the Cooler Ring, Joanna. Thank you. Why don't we start, Joanne, maybe tell us a little bit about the Chamberlain Group for our listeners who maybe don't know 
who the Chamberlain Group is, if we could just get a... Okay. Uh, Chamberlain Group is a global leader in access solutions. Uh, so you may know us from our LiftMaster and Chamberlain garage door openers, uh, but we also make gate, gate openers, telephone entry systems, and everything is brought together under our MyQ cloud. Well, and I, and I think that, you know, in our conversation before the show, I think that was what we, we found to be extraordinarily interesting is just the digital transformation of the Chamberlain Group more broadly and the integration of more technology. You were, you were mentioning that this year was one of the very first years that you actually had more software people than you have hardware people. And that's got to change the, the overall, obviously, the makeup of the company, but just uh, the, you know, the, the feeling inside as well. Yeah, absolutely. For decades, we've been a global leader in durable hardware solutions, and, and we're good at that. We, we produce and ship millions of them every year, uh, but our transformation has been about transforming our company to add intelligence. And so our, our vision expanded to uh, we give the power of access and knowledge. And so as we made our products more intelligent and we connected them to the internet, we have a consumer app. Now you can see when your garage door opens and closes, you can open and close it remotely. You can even have your Amazon Prime packages delivered into your garage. It changes the nature of what we're offering. We're thinking more about the end customer and what they want instead of only how do we open and close a barrier. Hmm. And, and I, I think too that that has to, you know, it changes revenue streams, obviously, because it brings services into play and not, not just uh, physical devices and, and machines and, and hardware. Um, how has it changed um, how you go to market? We had to restructure the entire company. We were originally structured by product and brand, and so we had our LiftMaster products and we had our Chamberlain products, uh, and we ended up having to restructure to be more aligned to the end customer. And so we have our residential business unit, we have our commercial business unit, we have our automotive business unit, and, and those teams have to think about who's the end user, uh, what do they want, what are the problems that they encounter, what could make their life better or their business better compared to the next best alternative, and we're creating solutions. I'm really curious about um, uh, the difference in managing a group team of people going shifting from hardware to software it seems to me uh, and maybe i'm a bit biased uh this person i used to work for who shall remain nameless used to be of the view that uh you couldn't have uh, traditional creatives uh tv ad people radio copywriters etc working next to uh, website developers that almost like these two people were so different that they couldn't even work in the same company let alone on the same initiatives which uh, you know, fast forward to 2019 would seem entirely ridiculous that you wouldn't have a level of digital enablement in almost any marketing initiative. Um, so it's like, but when you talk to him at the time, it would be like, what's next? Dogs and cats living together? I mean, we can't imagine it. Uh, so I'm kind of curious, uh, has there been a real shift in how you've had to think about the, the human side of the business as you have uh, more and more people dedicated to driving the software side? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the, probably the first manifestation is when we began to hire software engineers, we found that none of them wanted to live and work in the suburbs. And so we had to rent a WeWork office in, in downtown Chicago and hire uh, engineers to work in that office. And of course, those of you who know the nature of these types of, of offices, there's no dress code, they serve beer. It, it was totally different than, than our traditional office working environment. 
Um, since then, it's, it's been interesting because we get about 50% of our job acceptances now in the suburbs uh, in our Oak Brook headquarters. And so we are mixing dogs and cats. Uh, but I've found that um, it's not so much the software people being different, it is the engineers have a different preference for working than, than maybe the rest of the organization. And so we're finding that even though we have a very modern building that uh, is open and collaborative, they want to have a much more flexible workspace and, and they want to have stuff taken apart and they want to put stuff together and they want to uh, ideate and they want to be able to work in different teams and pods and things like that. So we're having to just rearrange and be more flexible and how, how we account for that. Really, cool. And look, I think it's just this week uh, where a WeWork uh, office got into the news because I think an umbrella fell between the door and the wall and somebody's been locked out of the WeWork office for the last three days because they can't find a way to get through the door and get the umbrella. So I, I just, I, if we can somehow tie that kind of Twitter meme into this, it's, I think it's just fantastic. I mean, it's a home run, Jeff. Perhaps there's a Chamberlain Group device that could be used to open that door. Well, yeah. We do provide access and knowledge. <laughs> But sorry, I, I, I mean, is this, was it supposed to be scripted? I mean, I, this is it's radio. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, I think uh, one of the other things, how have you found the, uh, I mean, one of the themes of this conference has been around talent acquisition and getting the right people in your organization. I mean, as, as someone who hires software developers, I know how difficult it can be to find them. Um, how have you found that compared to the past where you would have been hiring primarily hardware engineers? Uh, I think the problem is twofold. So, so first off, uh, most people don't think about working for a company like Chamberlain Group. You know, when I was a little girl playing Barbies, I didn't think I was going to grow up and work for a garage door opener company. And so, just the awareness of who we are as a company, what our mission is, and and the technology um, opportunity that it creates for people is the first thing. Um, the second thing, just really around finding talent and being able to tell that story, uh, we have ramped up our co-op and intern program significantly. And uh, uh, we've gone from just probably less than a handful to 60 this summer of co-ops and interns. And so as we look at the demographics of our company, we have a lot more per capita Gen Zers this year than we did three years ago because of that program. And it really is getting kids exposed to what could they be or what could they do. They see what a great company and culture it is. They are getting real work and challenging work and they wanna come back. They, they accept the jobs that we offer. The second thing that we have to do is um, we have always been a very self-sufficient company, very uh, vertically integrated, and all of our hardware durable products were manufactured and designed by us alone. When you become a software system services company, you have to really begin to consider ecosystems and partnerships a lot more broadly. Not only in your end customer solution, uh, the partnerships with other devices and other internet of thing, uh, interoperability, but also as you look for talent. Uh, sometimes you have to go away from Chicago, Illinois, and, uh, and partner with other people in other countries where there's a great educational base and, uh, and more talent that can be brought to your company. John, I really appreciate you taking the time today just to share some of your insights and knowledge on the uh, on the cooler ring. It was it's great to meet you here at the conference, and uh, really enjoyed your chat as well on uh, on risk taking. We didn't really dive into that much, but uh, uh, but uh, perhaps we can save that for another day. But thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It. it was nice to meet you both. Thanks. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to The Cooler Ring with Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight. Subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash the cooler ring. That's K-U-L-A partners.com slash the cooler ring.